Hey everyone, Dylan from the future here again. I had some technical difficulties and this week's episode has poor audio quality on my end. I appreciate you listening as always and the problem has been fixed for future episodes. Enjoy. Welcome to Vin Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host Dylan Jackson from Protea Machining and this week I'm joined by Callie Keen. Welcome Callie. Hey Dylan, what's up? Thanks for coming on and taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, I love this. Any chance that I get to nerd out about manufacturing yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on that. So awesome. So why don't you give us the rundown? What do you do? Um, you've got you know a lot going on if you look at your Instagram or anything like that. So what companies are you associated with? What do you do? And then what's your your gig? Yeah, th- thanks for that. So I grew up in manufacturing. My family has been in precision manufacturing of some kind here in Northern Virginia for about sixty years. So I literally grew up in a machine shop. <laughs> And I tried other things. I went to school for computer science. I tried my hand at the digital marketing. I've done event promotion, but I got sucked into the family business, right? I got sucked in, worked production. I mostly worked in fabrication, but we sucked in my brother into uh, the machine shop and he's turned into a fantastic machinist. But I worked through production and then I ended up in product development. And I was kind of reverse engineering simple parts for people, as is often the case for a machine shop. Somebody says, hey, I need 10 more of these widgets. I don't know what it is, but I need more of them. So you, you draw it up. And that kind of led to where I am today, which is developing full stack kind of complex products, technical products. So K-Form has evolved from a general machine shop into specializing in electronics enclosures for defense. So like rugged computers, tactical radios. I'm a subject matter expert in RF shielding. So like electronics emanating and interfering with other electronics. So we make fancy boxes, but uh, you know, that's just the kind of the end hype piece of that. But that led me to see how a lot of companies develop products because I've developed hundreds of products for companies from solo entrepreneurs to Fortune 100 companies. And I saw that a lot of entrepreneurs design products exactly backwards. Like Boeing doesn't develop a fighter jet and then ask the US government if they'd like to fly, right? And that's pretty much what every entrepreneur does is they they build the airplane and then see if anybody has an interest in flight. And so that, as a manufacturer, we really only get to make cool stuff if people sell the cool stuff. So kind of like a selfish behavior on my point as I started to get into more and more of the coaching aspect and I spun off my own company called Red Blue Collective. We work exclusively with entrepreneurs just of different shapes and sizes and kind of taking that experience and packaging it up. But that's led to the, the Instagram that I know a lot of people think it's fun or it's funny, <laughs> but it's <laughs> a lot of cool projects and you know producing content and you know, just, just trying to get people to reimagine what they can be if they have a cool idea what can you do can you make it can you sell it and it's pretty much where i'm at right now that's awesome yeah i think that a lot of us stumble on your instagram and stuff but when you look at your own trade from the outside you know when you're trying to educate others it it does provide a, a really interesting and funny perspective yeah well just just imagine that for manufacturing is kind of like a quiet industry, right? And I had the opportunity to work with the IMTS team, the AMT people, and I I had the opportunity to go to those shows since I was 20, so for 20 years. And 
you can be the biggest name in the world in manufacturing and outside of manufacturing, nobody knows who you are, right? So if you want to get the attention of other people and show them how cool manufacturing is, you can't be like, hey, look at how well this end mill cuts. Look at the shape of this chip because nobody cares. So it's kind yeah. of a different flavor of the same thing, right? Totally. So how much of your time is spent on Red Blue versus K-Form? Yeah, so, so K-Form is the... Wake up till four or five in the evening. That's our family business. And we've done a pretty good job of niching down and growing that business pretty significantly over the past couple of years. So Red Blue Collective, I designed so we have no employees. I don't need a location. And since I'm facilitating my network of connections, including manufacturing globally, the revenue can be pretty significant but like the actual direct involvement isn't that much, right? So somebody might be a coaching client that I meet with once a week. Or somebody might be a consulting client that I meet with twice a week. And then I coordinate like, hey, oh, you need a marketer? Here's this person. Oh, you need a copywriter? This, this person. You need an industrial designer? Here's three people to choose from. I would choose this person. They're kind of expensive, but here's another person. So it's more of connecting people and then saying, this is what the that process looks like. This is what that strategy looks like and maybe how to go to market or how to increase their sales. Awesome. Yeah. So a little bit stepping back to your backstory, you know, you said it was a family business and you said that you only, you guys niche down to RF shielding and fancy housings now, but yeah. when you started in this, you know, what was the company looking like when you were a kid and how did you kind of get first touches on machines and manufacturing? Yeah. So, so it started out as just a general machine shop. So like a lot of shops that you'll see a few, like maybe a couple CNC's and a lot of bridge ports, right? A lot of knee mills and things like that. You get a dro, and then you start going on and on. My, my dad added fabrication and we added painting and then we added you know, welding. And now we pretty much do full stack. So if you can imagine what would need to have one of those boxes, right? From full fabrication to... We do um, you know, five-axis horizontal machining, whatever, but powder coating, silk screen, engrave, chem film, wet paint, welding, whatever that somebody needs, plus access to our network. So if you need something weird, I'm probably the right guy to you know to tell you like, hey, if you want to embed this metal in this plastic, and we want to injection mold this part like this, okay, this is. Like, I'll, I'll just do that for you, right? Oh, you want to cast this part and then machine it? Well, we don't do castings, but I've got great casting companies that we work with. So don't worry about moving from uh, 10 parts to 10,000. Like, I'll just do that for you, right? Right. So people come to you for solutions, not for more problems to their solution or their, their problem. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So by really niching down like the market and who we focus, but then offering a really high solution value uh, inside of that. So it's like, instead of, this, is, this is just like a you know funny aside is that because I had a background in digital marketing, when I, I developed a flavor of our website and I made it so it ranked really highly for CNC laser cutting and water jet and machining, and it got us exactly the wrong kind of customers. <laughs> So I was like, I, so I had a 50 page website and I deleted it and turned it into a one page website. And, um, 
people are like, man, there's no information on your website. I'm like, well, all I want you to do is call me and it seems to be working just fine. So, you know, so it's just, it's really interesting when you look at that and see what people do. And I know we had some questions that kind of touch on this, but it's like, I feel like a lot of manufacturing, particularly machining, where good enough is commoditized in the market, it's so easily accessible and people are too lazy to make really great drawings or make really great designs. So instead of hearing me complain or tell them that their design could be better, they could just upload it to one of those sites and they could get the parts in a few days. So that portion of the market, I've seen it erode in the last 10 years. So you kind of try to move away from that and say like, well, what, are the, what does the person really need, right? They don't really need a part. What they need to do is they need to grow their business with a product strategy, right? So even the big boys, they need to ship projects. They don't need parts. Nobody needs parts. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to, to put it. I know that we have struggled every now and again taking on a customer that does end up going to, you know, Proto Labs or something like that. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you want your part, really quickly and maybe not to the tolerance you want, maybe not looking pretty, but it's the part that's, I understand you going there because I can't fill that. I don't have 400 CNCs and a Haas <laughs> HFO across the street to fix them, you know? So yeah, I, I totally understand it. Yeah. And we just found that like, that's the customer that always needs stuff really fast. They want it very inexpensively. There's always a problem with the design and there's never any scale. So like, they're not going to come back and say, yeah, I needed those five. Now I need 50 or I need 50 every month or, hey, I'm going to try to b- make this bid for 50,000. Do you think that you're the one that's going to support me? They don't know how to do the five, so they can't imagine doing the 50,000, right? So when I made this connection mentally, I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like they're never going to scale because they're either just embedded in projects or they're like on their way of going out of business. Totally. Yeah. And I definitely empathize with you on the whole website thing because you can get overloaded with quoting so much work and just the amount of time it takes to quote. I mean, you don't want half of that work anyway, and then you're having to spend the time on it. Yeah. I'm probably a Zometry's most effective sales rep in the world. Because <laughs> uh, I know a couple of the guys over there and I'll just, I'm like, you know what? This is the perfect company for you. Like you should just go to them and I like to support our local startup scenes. So they're in Maryland or in Virginia. I'm just like, to go there. That's they're the perfect tool for the job, right? Yeah, definitely. So before we jump into all the questions, one that I added just before we started and kind of keeping with K form is you guys or you mentioned that you do government work as well. So mm, do yeah. you deal with ISO and AS ninety one hundred? We had a few people on the voice chat last night yeah. the night before kind of talk about just everything to do with that umbrella and that, you know, a lot of the small shops that listen to the show don't really have to deal with that. They don't really know where to start or if they should be looking into it. So, you know, what can you say about that? Yeah. So I'll give you, I'll give you the kind of a broad overview of this. I kind of got thrust into this situation. We had a large customer. It was like a war story, right? It's 2008, right? (laughs) You can imagine this. So I I was a young buck, right? And we had a customer and I had just gotten into interacting with the customers more. 
And basically, they weren't going to give us any more work unless we were ISO 9001, whatever the edition was at that time. And so I had to just buy some books and figure it out and then get roasted alive for how bad the, our process and you know our quality manual and how you know poorly it was constructed. I'm like, hey, man, I'm like 25 years old and have no idea what I'm doing. So this is pretty good. So we passed conditionally but with like a, a million corrective actions that needed to be done. Then we got a consultant that we paid a little bit of money and gave us some direction. And I took the lead auditor course. And that really, for me, the BSI lead auditor course tells you what the other side of the table is looking for. So it tells you what it should look like. But then now as a business owner, I more and more, I look at it like this is it's a pain in the butt. So I want it to drive value. So I want it to be as lightweight as possible, but to drive value. So for people that are listening, you can look at it from two ways. It's either going to get you work, which eh, is arguable. It's more like it won't, you won't lose work, right? It's never going to get you work because again, ISO is commoditized. Everybody's got it. There's terrible shops in China that have it, right? You can write down any full process and as long as you follow it, it doesn't mean that you make good parts, right? Right. So there's, there's that argument to it. And then there's the argument to it is that if you do take it seriously and you really think about it and spend some time, you can remove yourself from a lot of the business and it can free you up to be able to scale a little bit more, right? So that, that is, that's the trick though. That's the lifelong goal. And it's really what its intent is. And it's built on some older systems. That's the intent. And I do recommend it. I do recommend looking at Having a formal quality system, whether it's ISO or it's some equivalent system. We're not AS9100, but we do the first article inspection reports pretty frequently. And that seems to make everyone happy. The new ISO standard is very closely aligned to the AS9100 standard. It wouldn't be outside of reason that they're really just, it's really the differences in the auditing, how serious the auditor is. If you work in manufacturing, you become a QA auditor, right? You become an ISO or AS auditor. You could probably go to any shop and fail them in the world because you actually know like, you know, you know how the sausage is made. You're just, but that's just an aside. It's the lead auditors and the auditing is much more stringent in uh, AS9100. Okay. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What people should really be worried about and people are less worried about is the uh, cybersecurity regulations. If you're looking at getting into defense, you have to understand the FAR and the DFARS regulations. And I would, a particular note, look at the up and coming, like, so NIST 800-171, and then upcoming CMMC level three requirements for touching, you know, this is get, this, this, now see, now you're getting into like my nerd territory for sure. But like, just look at those requirements and like, those are very heavy handed and being touching ITAR or confidential, you know, unclassified information, CUI, or you know, just important documents is going to get much more difficult. I think that's going to squeeze out a lot of the smaller players. In the yeah, it's crazy. I know where my day job is AS and ISO, and they just recently have started implementing all the stuff for the next cybersecurity stuff, and it's yeah. insane. I mean, it makes it tough to do, even be an employee there and do business. Oh, yeah. We'll be spending probably... Uh, hundred thousand dollars a year to be compliant to that regulation so i mean it just instantly puts a lot of people out out of the running yeah yeah well it's crazy that you know they have 
all of these new regulations and yet you know things like that vulnerability in the exchange server recently like that pops up and it's like well you know no matter what you had done you probably would have been screwed by that if you didn't know yeah well that's technology right so yeah yeah exactly well cool let's uh jump into some questions see the first one from zimmer manufacturing had asked i've always wondered if many small shops would be more efficient and productive than a few large manufacturing facilities. Do you think that the future of American manufacturing is several small, very efficient shops instead of large plants? Yeah, I'll, so I'll give a an, like an odd perspective on this. So this is kind of the meta version of the argument about why having five three-axis machines is more efficient than having one five-axis machine, right? Because if I have five small shops, if one of them has a problem, I still have four shops, right? And I can blend supply and I can manage their peaks and their volumes. Like, you know, so if one gets busy, I can source to a pool of capacity versus a singular point of capacity. So if you think about that as a machinist, you're managing your department. That's how I think of our supplier network on a larger level. And the answer really isn't either one, but both because larger shops have just, they have a different class of equipment. That's, this is the issue is that we're looking, we, we look at our work and the simple three axis parts, we have suppliers where I look at it and say, if this part can be outsourced, outsource it first. That's our first decision. Instead of saying, we're going to make it's if it looks like this, send it to this guy. And then we do everything else. And, and that's been part of our growth strategy. Partnering with larger shops has been part of our growth strategy. The other way is like, if we get a hold of an opportunity with a customer, we used to be, we used to do it like this. It's like, we would do the one, work through all the design. I'd develop the product. We'd do the 10. And then when it came to making like 200 or 50 a month, we'd be like, nope, too big of a job for us. Like go on someplace else. And I was like, man, these other guys are getting all the gravy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they're getting all the gravy work. So but what we figured out is like a lot of the large shops, they just machine parts. They don't, they won't mask them. They won't paint them. They won't silk screen them. They can't make the cover because they don't do sheet metal. Right. It, you know, so, so like working with them as a larger machine p- provider or in the case of some of our projects, like a die casting facility or injection molding facility, it's like you really should look at both. And anybody that's running a machine shop out here, like, you should look at getting collaborative partners so you can take on bigger projects. Yeah, definitely. It's super helpful. I know a good an older customer and now they have some machining capabilities too, but they're amazing precision welders. And we've kind of partnered, you know, we steer, we either steer com- companies to them if they just need welding or if it's something that we can tackle together, you know, we'll quote it out and then have them quote out the welding on the back end. That's perfect. So I yeah. say it's always, it's always yes, but. It's, <laughs> it's an answer to a question. Like like, can you do this? It's like always yes, but, or, or yes, and then figure out how to do it. Not a no, if, but if we do this, right? Yeah, definitely. So Design the Everything had two questions. His first one was, how do you choose which products to start developing? This is so awesome. So we've done some projects that are pretty publicly knowledgeable, I guess, is that for Red Blue Collective, and I'll try to, I'll make the condensed version of this. But I went out and I went out and spoke to people. And this is really how 
I coach people to go develop products either way. So in Red Blue Collective, I was trying to figure out like what obstacles people had, like what problems that they had in developing products. So I went out and spoke and literally asked questions and then got feedback, right? And I developed information that I was able to tell people and like other speaking topics. And that's how I do it today. If you listen to my podcast, so I say like, hey, if you have a question, it'll take you to the next level, DM me, da, 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 da. But people had lots of excuses. They were like, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have resources. So a friend and I, we did a project called Start to Kickstarter, Launch in 20 Days. And I made this as uh, two seminars. And I was like, if you sign up, I'm going to show you every single step of how I pick products and how I launch them. And in 20 days, we're going to go live on Kickstarter. And we did that. And we made a $200 fidget spinner. <laughs> right? And people were like, that's so stupid. Who would buy a $200 fidget spinner? What's a fidget spinner and all this other stuff? We ended up looking like wizards when they became super popular. <laughs> but I showed people like the math of why this worked. And at the time, machinists, we were making them as well, you know, government work. Uh, like well, People were trading them. We were trading them on Instagram. We were looking at them and they were always sold out. And I showed people like, this is how you pick a niche audience. This is how you talk to them. This is what you figure out, like who the influential people in those markets, what they're making, what they're selling, whatever. But then that led to us making a $700 fidget spinner with Chris Bathgate. And how did we choose to do that? Well, Chris predominantly made large sculptures at the time. He had done the top, which we almost made a top for Kickstarter and then decided not to. One of the reasons was... There were so many amazing top makers already in the market. And Chris had made a top. And so we were like, hey, you, do you want to do a collaboration? It's asking Michael Jordan if he wants to start a basketball camp with you. He says, <laughs> yes, you're golden, right? You're set for life. How we choose products is we look at something that we try to figure out what our niche group of people want. And then what I do is I partner with whoever has the brand equity in that space. So Chris is kind of like the Michael Jordan of making cool machine stuff. So it's like, most people want his sculptures, but they're not dropping ten or $20,000 for one. So when you say it's a $700 sculpture, it's a cheap bathgate sculpture. It's not an expensive fidget spinner. And people jumped on it. We sold a bunch of those. So that's kind of like I have a whole thesis about picking products, but we do this with uh, our K-Form products, which are sold to the government. It's basically we figure out what a very specific niche audience wants. We try to make the most premium version of that. And then we want to get whoever is that thought leader or influential social proof person to say, I bless you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's super cool. I, I like that mentality. And it was, I had no idea that you had worked with Chris until I posted on the Discord that episode. And you're like, oh, yeah, like, I worked with Chris. He's a cool guy. I was like, what? And I like, went back to your Instagram. I was like, oh, yeah, he has. That's so cool. Yeah, we did, we did four projects together. And yeah, he's great. So he's uh, local and it just shows you that you, know, you look at his work and of course his photos are perfect and his work is immaculate and it's immaculate in real life as well. And you think like, oh man, I could never talk to that person. And I've gotten more and more into sales in the last bit of my career. And it's like, well, what's the downside of just saying, hey, you know, Chris, I think your stuff is amazing. If you ever want to do a collaboration, like, what's he going to say? No, no. Or right. you didn't have it in the first place. 
but you'll never be able to build that relationship or do cool stuff if you never get like a bunch of people <laughs> to tell you no. Well, that's super cool. Yeah. His other question was, how do you stand out as a small business when you're competing in a saturated market? Oh, man. Step one, go on my Instagram and look at those new reels that I'm dropping. Because, <laughs> But ser seriously, this is the thing is that when you look at when you look at saturated markets, they're saturated in a couple of different ways. And when they're generally they're sat they're saturated with mediocrity. That's the thing It's like when you think the market is saturated, that just means that it might be commonplace. But if you actually go out and talk to people and say, like, are your needs filled, right? So again, if we pick a niche group of people or a niche application, and then we go talk to people and say, like, what problems do you have? What problems have you experienced? Or like, tell me about the last time you tried to do this project. What have you tried in the past? How many times has this occurred? And we start having this story coming from them of what they're trying to do and what they've achieved in the past will realize that for any market, and I've done this with people for beauty products, super high-tech startups, like clean tech startups, battery backup startups. Like we've gone into space and you think like, well, the world doesn't need one more hair tool. But then when you jump into the niche market, you realize that there's huge portions of every single market that are completely unserved. And they're unserved because the marketing isn't spelled out for them. Like I don't, at KFORM, we don't have different machines than you do, right? It's just how I message what those machines are going to do for the business is dramatically different than what a machine shop does, right? So I put it in terms that, that people need, and then we stack our services and present them in a package that, that appeals to like what their actual problem is. Instead of saying like, I can make cheap parts, we're saying, I want to be an extension of your business. I want to help your business grow where your manufacturing department or your manufacturing partner. I'll reduce the price of your parts. We'll build capacity to get your projects out the door. And I'll show you how to scale your design so they can go as far as your salespeople can take them. Right? And it's like, but I don't, I mean, we have mostly Haas machines. It's not like a fancy machine shop by any means. We have a lot of equipment, but you know, we're not like all more Aseki. We have one Akuma horizontal and we have four Haas 5 axis, so like the old TR5s, right? And then we've got the new UMC 750 SSs in, and that's like a whole other story that you can jump into. But, uh, but, you know, we don't have like exotic equipment or anything like that. But, and you'd think, hey, Proto Labs has hundreds of these. So, like, how are you not just dominated by Proto Labs? Because they don't actually serve what that customer needs. And so that's how we stand out in and be compelling saturated market. Awesome. Yeah. I, I think, well, I mean, you listen, you listen to Clive's episode and that was another thing that he's also echoed is like you have to be hyper-focused yeah. and really find that niche within your niche. Otherwise, what's the point, you know? Yeah. The world's so big that people are, they have FOMO that they're missing out on opportunities, but the world's so big that once you niche down, you realize like, well, I could run a $20 million machine shop on the smallest possible niche. Like I only machine foot pegs for like these three Jeep. That's it. And it's like, that's probably more money than you ever need to make. And it would be really easy because <laughs> the variability is so low, right? Yeah. Yeah, the world's big. So. so real quick, before we jump to the next question, what's the story on the UMC 750s? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, so they had a really good deal on them. And um, we're like, great. We got them and they're like literally brand new. They're, they're, I, I thought, so in, in the kind of maturity curve of machines, like I prefer to buy the machines that are new, but have been on the market. So like when we got the horizontal or when we got our fiber laser, or we got our press break, it's not that they're like on clearance. They're like, this is a piece of junk and we got to get it out the door. They're like, well, next year, the new model's coming out. And I know this is a rock solid machine. It's been on the market for two, three, four years. I could go and see one whenever I want. Like for the Akuma, literally we just went down the street, went to uh, another shop. It's actually an in-house machine shop. So they didn't really care us seeing it. And just, hey, there's a room full of these Akumas. How do you like it? Great. Okay, cool. But I like that. And that's what I thought we were purchasing with the machine, but they sent it and it's like, it's a new model of a new model. It's like fresh off, like, like, you know, there's like a, there's like an engineer, like still finishing up the drawings, like that comes with the machine, right? So yeah, they're, they have like a, they have a kit coming out. So it doesn't plug up with chips in, instantaneously. Like doesn't leak everywhere. We're, we'll work through it. Hey, when it, it's like this, it's like when you're on the floor, you see like the problem with the part that you're working on. Like when you're in charge of the machine, some of the maintenance issues of the machine, when you're like running the business, you see like that everything is a problem all the time. So like my tolerance for, for things being just like on fire or not being right. I'm just like, I'm like, well, oh, I mean, okay, it's a brand new machine. Like, what do you expect? Like, we'll just fix it and we'll be on our way. It's like, it's another, it's another half a million dollars. that's just sitting there. <laughs> what are you going to do? That hurts. But, but it's all you know, fixed now. It's just, it's humorous because they make so many of those machines. You kind of thought like, okay, this has been around a while. That's why we didn't pull the trigger on the UMCs before. We got the SS, so that's just going to be a bump, right? So that's not going to be like a redesign. But like it came in, and like the the power is in a different place than the diagram, right? The oh, door and the, the sheet metal is completely different, right? It's like a totally different thing. So like we had already wired up the space, and like all, all the drops are in the wrong place. It's but you know you're just like yeah, it's fine, whatever. Like right. let's make some parts, guys. Yeah. Yeah, so you thought you were in the middle of the adopter bell curve, and really you're you're an early adopter by accident. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, I guess that's a good way of, of looking at it. Oh, well, I'm glad that at least you know it, it was overcomable. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like an absurdly common machine, right? So it's it's there's lots of people that can help us with it. It's a nice part about us. So. Definitely, yeah. So Obsidian Tools asked, "What are the best product launches you've come across?" And would see as a great blueprint for others. Mm, that's that is fantastic. Well, so really, that's going to depend on the market because of like how you would launch a product. And what I like to do, so as far as a blueprint goes, that's like that's the bread and butter of Red Blue Collective, right? So like I give talks on this that are forty five minutes, and I also have like whole ninety day programs that we go through this whole thing. But the best product launches that I have come across, they work on a scheme of being able to pre-sell, uh, uh, pre-sell a product <clears throat> before it actually uh, gets launched. So whether that's a mechanism at just starting of using crowdfunding 
or like what we ended up doing with Chris, where you just build a list and say, Hey, we're making this thing. Do you want to buy it? And people go on the list and they pre-order it. The best launches that I've seen, what they do is we go through uh, three, I have three principles that I have and products should one, they should always be building your brand. So like the way that a customer, your partners and yourself interact with your brand, like the emotion, the experience that they get should be giving some kind of positive vibes, right? From it, we call it a brand promise, right? It's the experience that people have when they're interacting with your brand. So we want to have products that build the recognition and they build towards like some kind of notoriety, respect, authority in, in a space. And we want to have something that is irresistible enough to cut through that saturated, like limited attention market. So I, I have people make premium products or like absurdly differentiated products if possible. But as far as best product launches, I don't know. Like, are there any commercials or something you've seen like that has come up and you've been like, that's genius. And I don't know. I just don't, I don't really watch TV, but the best product launches that, that I see, and I see this over and over again, is that people build a community, they interact with that community, and then they create a product that solves the need of that community. And like for small companies and smaller creators, so people that can't afford to push out lots of ads, I really want people to look at that model and look at who's your favorite YouTuber, right? How do they use this over and over again? And you probably know people in the EDC market. This is exactly what they do and their whole businesses works on it, right? And you know this, if anybody's listening that's into fitness, this is how the fitness community works. This is how the supplement um, community and beauty community works. So when you see this and you realize like, they're not so much launches as we're creating our product as an inevitability, right? So we're, we're building a lot of brand trust into the market. So either through engagement or association with somebody that has that like that market equity, right? And then we're putting what they need or want like in front of them. And I, I see that over and over again. I've been following a fitness influencer for a long time that used to live locally and he made a candy brand, but it was part of like his brand was that he always ate candy before he was going to work out. So then when he was like, I have a, a launch coming, he didn't have to push out a million ads. He was just like, you guys have been watching me for 10 years. You know, this is part of the thing that I like. It's not, it's totally different. There's no other fitness influencer that's making candy and it's sold out. Now it's like, you know, an eight figure bit plus business. It's just like, like, how is that? The, it's not the answer that people want, right? Everybody wants me to tell them how to convert cold traffic or like how to get like to do some kind of drop shipping flip hack. And I'm like, I can show you how to like launch a product and grow a real business. But it's, that, that just leads into the blueprint thing. I mean, my, my blueprint is, is this, is like we set goals, like what are we actually trying to achieve for ourselves? We should have like the end in mind. We figure out who we're going to serve, like who our avatar is, what their tribe is, what the story of transformation that we're offering. So like even novelty products offer just that. They offer novelty or the products with Chris, they offer uh, significance or connection, right? They're like totems. It's like, I got the thing, right? It's cool. We look at competition. We look at products in a portfolio sense. So where it sets in like our other products. And we do a soft launch into our community, get social proof, launch it out in a more complex way, 
look at additional partners and then we look at scale partners. So like who I can get to fulfill, who I can get to manufacture. So I go through those nine steps and I use those to help people launch their products. And I also use it to help people that have maybe seven figure businesses like grow or launch bigger products. It's the same nine steps. That's <laughs> awesome. His other question was, what are the most relevant product marketing recourses in your opinion? You mean uh, recourses? That's what I'm not sure either. Maybe just like, what do you think is the most relevant or advantageous pro product marketing? Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things that are happening with marketing right now, but it, it really, it, so it's going to depend on the, the product and really like how much money that you have to work with. So people instantly run to, oh, I'm going to run Facebook ads or I'm going to run Google pre pre-roll ads. And like, it's not that those don't work because they definitely work, right? It's just that unless you have your messaging and your creative down and you know that your product is targeted well, you're kind of scaling mediocrity, right? And it becomes very expensive. So a lot of the people that I end up working with, they've been burned by paying a lot of money for like a Facebook ad course. And then they're like, oh, ads don't work. I'm like, well, they're like a trillion dollar industry. They definitely work. It's just, <laughs> it's just like they don't work for you because of what, like where you're at. They're a scale device, not a growth device. So let's look at like a growth device right now. People buy from people and people that they trust. So again, it goes back to the community aspect. We're launching with people. I'm really into collaborative marketing and collaborative product launching. And that has been the fastest way for us to hack revenue. So in B2B, you know, we just use different words. We call them channel partners or distributors. And it's like, you just ask yourself, who has my audience, right? Who owns my audience? And if I'm like, I want to talk to everybody that Dylan knows, I'm going to come on this podcast. I'm not going to like figure out some kind of Facebook ad hack and try to like spend money, convert people. And I see that as the most, the most effective quick thing that also builds brands. But I can give you a huge list of... Huge list of books if you if you'd like as well. I'm not a huge ClickFunnels fan just because of the community that it breeds, but Russell Brunson's books, especially Expert Secrets, his little series of books are very good. They have a lot of information per page. Seth Godin writes a lot of great books. So Purple Cow. Yeah, uh, we just had that as a book club book uh, there you last go. month. Yeah, you should read Tribes. It's very good as well. And my whole customer avatar strategy. Its foundation is on tribes. So having thought leaders and understanding the difference between influencers and influential people. So I definitely would read, I mean, Seth Godin, he's kind of golden boy, right? So anything that he writes is concise and very thoughtful. But let's see, I don't know. I could go on and on. I get more fascinated with marketing because I've realized that marketing and sales is what gives us the opportunity to make. And my personal mission is to make cool stuff. So I'm like, how do I get to make cool stuff? Well, I got to get more chances. You know, I got to get more swings in. I like that way of looking at it. I think a lot of people, especially nowadays where, you know, YouTube has like 40 pre-roll ads or, you know, there's like, you know, I watch a 10 minute video and there's like five ads in it. I think that a lot of people see marketing as this evil versus... A, a means to an end, you know, yeah. or something like that. It's, it's so like you have to also think is like, what's the true cost of your conversion when you resort to that type of uh, converting? 
is that you're pushing away a lot of opportunities at the same time that you're getting. So if people are annoyed by your pre-roll ads, those people will never be your customers. And those could be your biggest customers. So like, how do you get to them, convert them, somebody that they know, like, and trust without spamming them with stupid ads that they don't want to see? Because, you know, so like, just, you don't need to do, just don't, like, and again, like, because the world's so big, you don't need an opportunity that scales to the size where like it won't work unless you use ads. Most people, like, we, we launch products where our product launches are in the six figures and we don't spend a dime on ads. Right, so. Okay. So let's say like I've got an EDC gadget that I know there's a market for because there's similar products like it and yep. I'm a small maker. Right off the bat, where would be my best dollar spent? Like sending it out to people in the... In the community that are well-known influencers, I guess? Yeah. So when we launched really quickly, and then we did this for Artifact, the spinner project, is that we sh- we involved people right away. We showed people the whole process. So I, like, we went to as far as like we built a homemade tachometer and tested bearings and showed you like, well, this is the speed curve. This is the one that like the other guys use. This is the one that we're using. Here's this custom one that everybody's complaining about on the forums, but here's all the stats for it. And if you, you can like look at our video that we did live streaming, testing them all, like a rig that, that you know hits it the same way. So it spins and records the time. And so like we involved people in the process of developing that product with Artifact. We did the same as like sketches on paper, renderings, Chris coming to, to K-Form and looking at the machines and photographing that, the prototypes. We had another notable EDC person make the pouch that it went in. So then, see, then we were able to pick up, like I'm picking up Chris's list, I'm picking up Renacita Concepts list, right? And then we ended up donating a couple to charity at auction. So like that also, you know, push it out. It's like, hey, share this whatever money that we make off of these, then we're going to donate to the Makerspace and Baltimore Museum of Industry. But like, we just thought like, how do we get people as involved as possible, like during the product launch? And that ended up being a lot cheaper because the the pouches were cost neutral, right? (laughs) We show people the whole process of like drawing it, rendering it, Dino making it, us getting it, us fitting it, us picking the one out that we wanted, you know, whole thing. And so if, if you have limited money, we have these amazing tools that are available to us at s- the social media and people are so afraid to like hold on to their idea and not show any aspect of it. Yeah. When you have your really big idea, you're going to, I need to file patents for it. I'm going to need to get investment. This is my, we call a hero idea. Like, that's great. Yeah. Hold that one close to your chest and have like plenty of bullets, right? Have your money ready. But like, let's do some projects where you gain operational knowledge. Like, how do you run a launch? Like, How do you fulfill a product? How do you deal with suppliers? How do you deal with customers? How do you deal with returns? All of those things. So what I have people do is we make a differentiated but simple product and we are able to build our list, build audience and gain some revenue. And it's, it's easier to collaborate with people too. If you're like, Hey, I've done these two projects or I've done these three projects. They're like, cool. Well, I want to work with Dylan. Cause like, he seems to know what he's doing. He's done it before versus like knocking on doors and being like, I have an idea and I have no, money. 
You know what I'm saying? So as far as like that goes, I really like that whole like story process to gain some traction. People are like, they're randomly mean and generally nicer than you'd think, right? So the comments that we got on Artifact were like insanely mean. But in, uh, at the end of the day, every bad comment had four or five positive comments backing us up. Hey, well, you can't buy them anyways. They're sold out. Like this and this and this, you know. But yeah, it literally got like 100,000 negative comments. You just have to say. <laughs> we realized like those projects like uh, Netske last year on one Instagram account, one video of Netske still got 2.3 million views. World of Engineering, it was like in the top eight posts for last year. And it's a four-year-old project or a three-year-old project. So like the amount of the amount when you do projects publicly, and I advise like anybody that's listening to this, think of this as the long-term game. If you do something like we had 630,000 people that watched the artifact launch on Facebook, right? That's how many people watched our 45-minute like publicly launched video, right? Okay. Because we built up the whole hype around like, hey, we're making it. Look, here's the prototype. And so when we announced the whole full thing in a conference room in a makerspace on a phone, the collective views for it were, yeah, about 630,000 people. So like, and we spent no money on ads stuff for that whole thing. <laughs> so, you know, that's the best place to spend your money is for, at least for product launches. Totally. So Fort Manufacturing asked, so in a manufacturing business, I guess he's asking, best place to spend money, you know, is it capital equipment, people, marketing? That's great. Yeah, I think, you know, with manufacturing businesses, it seems like we always have too much and too little of everything, you know? So it's like, oh, you have too much equipment and not enough work or not enough equipment and too much work. So Finding the balance is really hard and it kind of goes back to earlier question is I, I think people should spend a little bit more time developing partners so you can kind of even out those big swings, right? Because anybody that's running a machine shop that's listening, they know what I'm talking about is we're on the roller coaster and you can kind of smooth those things out if you have partners, you have, you have friends, right? For me, the place that we're spending money is we're looking at things that will be a little bit more automated. So I'd rather pay people more and have it a little bit more automated. And our first real toe dip into this was when we bought those, when we bought the Trunnion 5-axis, right? Is that we essentially use it as a 3 plus 2 machine or however you want to look at it, right? We're not doing true 5-axis machining on it. It's just less setups. And thought, okay, we don't have that many people in our machine shop. We don't have that many machines. So if we have one machine that's effectively replacing two or three, or in that case, four machines, like that's got to be that's that's got to be better, right? And we got one, and six months later, we bought another one because we were <laughs> we were wow. really right, you know. <laughs> and, and we were like, wow. So one instead of having this machine run for 30 minutes on a side of a box, because we're making boxes, right? It's like now it's running for an hour and a half or an hour, you know, it's running on four or five sides of this box. So you can just set it and then you can go over to the other one. And so one guy can easily run 
both five axis machines or he can run three machines instead of you know running around like a crazy person so you know it's just it's like looking at simple things like that and then now looking at robotic arms and we did the horizontal thing and looking at if we are going to spend money how can that take that roller coaster and smooth out the roller coaster right so that's really what i'm looking at because we're keeping the business that we have, but going after really large opportunities. And those really large opportunities are like, what would happen if you got a job that's twice the size of your current business? So this is thought experiments, something I would do with clients. It's a mind expanding question that you ask. It's like, if you're, if you like, we're a $3 million business and you get a $6 million opportunity, one job, do you say no, or do you say yes, but? Right. So, so say hell yes, but <laughs> right. But like most people will say no, or they say that's impossible. So when you look at it, it's like that would be a huge spike. But how can we create a system, whether that's inside our walls or outside our walls, or it's with more flexible equipment or more flexible people that allow us to like the chance to be successful, right? And so ask those those um, crazy questions, but. I think we need really cross-trained people and we need more flexible equipment. So okay. We're spending our time and money respectively. Okay. And then his other question was more on the product side. How do you know where to spend money? Identifying product trends or capitalizing on the one you have? That's, yeah, that's good too. So we, we spend money on making our products more efficient. So like developing a better supply chain, getting better equipment, so we got a more automated PEM server, right? So we got a really nice machine that inserts all of the PEM nuts in our product. We got a time saver. So it just is more efficient at deburring the parts. But we spent that money because we knew it was the ROI was like 15 minutes for getting it. It's like, get it, boom. You know exactly what it's for. When you're in that situation, that's fantastic. But when you look at developing products, if you look at the racks, we only have a couple of the products for K-Form on the website. Just the nature of the product, we don't really like put it out there really what it is. But what we actually do is I ask people what they need when they come in because it's so hard to get a hold of the type of customer that cares about that type of cybersecurity. So it's like technical surveillance, countermeasure, you know, emanations control, server racks, right? Or different types of enclosures. You, you can't, there's no phone number to call. There's no email. There's no like, you can't go knocking on a door of the person that would buy that. So when you do get a hold of them, I ask them questions about what problems they have and what they're trying to do. And then I ask them dumb questions like, if I were to make that product, would you buy 20 of them or would you buy 50 of them? So if I develop that product for free, would you buy it? And the answer is usually no, but often yes. Like eventually, <laughs> so our most successful product we sell a lot of these a year uh, I developed it for somebody drew it and I did it in 2014 and no one bought it until 2017 but it cost me very little to just put it in SolidWorks and draw it but the guy that said he had that problem he didn't he that guy didn't buy it until 2019 but somebody else said yes and we've sold eight figures of that product Wow. You know, so, so like when you look at it and 
and you just ask people what they need and you understand those problems, like you're going to, you're going to come up with awesome stuff. That's great. So the last question we had was from Tom at Inspiration Metalworks and it was just time management tips. And you actually just put out a reel today, I think on that. So I, time management is something I, I can talk about this because I struggle with it, right? I have you know, severe AD, ADD, right? And like for real, and then as an entrepreneur, that's kind of like giving pet pills to ADD. It's like gasoline on a roaring fire because you get pulled a million ways. But the, the best thing that I have is I do time blocking. And so I go into my calendar and the times that I don't want to be disturbed or I want to focus on stuff, I block it out. I use Calendly to send people links. So can't call me, but you can always schedule a call. Like if you're my client, you have that link, you can go to it. You could schedule a call. We hop on a zoom. It's fine, but you can only pick the times that aren't blocked off. So I have open times in my schedule and those fill up, you know, a day, a couple days in advance, but otherwise I block off times and I try to have a focus of 45 minutes to 60 minutes, no longer than that. And then I get up and I walk around. I do my little gemba walk, right? So I check on my projects, say hello to somebody, get a drink of water, go back another 45 minutes, an hour. And that's called a Pomodoro cycle. It's neurologically linked. It's like your brain can only really focus. Like it depends on the type of task, but 60 to 90 minutes is the max of the total possible cycle. But we're really effective in that 45 minutes on... 10, 15 minutes off cycles. That's great. That's uh, come up a few times. Our uh, Simcoe dealer at my day job, he sends out a weekly or biweekly email. That's just, you know, informational. It's called his five minute Gemba. And then the last book that we just read for the book club, the perfectionist that he talks about going to Japan and they work for 45 minutes and then take 10 minutes of, you know, physical exercise or something like that to, kind of get back in the groove. Yeah, it's super effective. And it also kind of beats back that like that worry background processing part of your brain where you're like, oh, I got to check up on this thing. I got to check up on this thing because it just popped up in your head. And you're like, well, I've got 32 minutes left. Like I know that in 32 minutes is my time to do that walk. And I'll just, I'll write it down. I'll do it on that list. And so I'll go check on project X, project Y, and you know, thing Z or whatever. And then you go, and go back. So for me, that's helpful. Like, you know, dumb stuff, turning notifications off, turning, closing outlook. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Cool. That's great. And then I always finish out the episodes with two things. One is give you any time, you know, what's new in your world? What do you got going on that you want to share with everybody? Okay. Yeah. So I, I am, I'm launching a new thing. And so people that are interested in product development, might find this interesting is I'm kind of on a tear about like fake gurus and people scamming early entrepreneurs online. It's super annoying to me because like my, I mean, my background's in engineering and manufacturing. So I'm like come from this kind of no nonsense world. And then I enter this, this digital world where it's like 99.9% total nonsense. (laughs) So, so similar to the start to Kickstarter launch in 20 days, I am doing a campaign called the ultimate product launch campaign. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to 
pick a simple product in a saturated market and I'm going to show people how I pick the product, how I pick the people that I'm going to work with, how I get samples of it, how I make it differentiated, how I launch it, how I turn that into a company, how I grow it, and then possibly sell the company. I'm going to do all that stuff from picking it to launching it in 90 days. And I'm going to do it transparently. I'm going to do it on live stream so everybody can watch what I'm doing. And I'll tell people how to, how to do it themselves. So I'll be using my nine-step framework. But like, I don't generally work with people that are just starting. So I, I want to just give the information away. So if you aren't paying like five and $10,000 for these like scam programs, it's just, <laughs> just like my way, like sticking in the eye of these kind of these, I don't know, fools. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But like, hopefully a couple of people will grow into, you know, bigger businesses and then we can do cool stuff together, but it should be a lot of fun. You could DM me about that or I think I have the, the link up redbluecollective.com slash product launch. Yeah. Should be a lot of okay. fun. Awesome. That sounds like a blast for sure. <laughs> it's a total pain in my butt. Like I, I look at it right now. I'm like, why am I even doing <laughs> this? But yeah, it, in next year I'll be like, yeah, that was a lot of fun. It's going to be torture for uh, right now, but. Okay. <laughs> so real quick before my last question that I ask everybody, but you do a ton of social media and just media in general. Do you have any tips for, I mean, I think like all of us small businesses have aspirations of like, oh man, if I could only get my Instagram and my YouTube under control and be posting quality content, I'd be, you know, rolling in it. Like, how do you keep up with someone? Because you do a podcast and hype, you do yeah. all your Instagram, you do all these live streams, you know, how do you keep up with it? And what tips do you have for people? Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah. Start with something that's controllable and understand what your goals are, right? I don't really expect to get customers from the media that I'm putting out, but I do expect to own the search returns for my name and for things around my name. So like if you were to meet me and then you were to search like, Hey, what's that guy up to? Well, you can see like page after page of like, Callie's launched this. So he's written about in here or in this magazine, or he spoke at this place. That's kind of cool. But really what it is, I'm naturally, I'm naturally introverted. I would much rather be in SolidWorks, just designing stuff or coding, right? I'd rather be like fooling around with technology. And, but I realized that I couldn't do what I really like, which is making cool stuff at scale unless I worked with other people. And I needed to become much better at communicating what that value was. So by putting out the content, I've tried a couple different things. Like years ago, my Instagram was really heavily EDC focused, kind of changed the direction of that, clean the content and move more to this entrepreneurial focus that you see it now and kind of developed that along. And then couldn't do speaking engagements last year, obviously. So it started the podcast. And at first that was very hard to come up with the topics. And now I could pretty much just pick, I, I, you know, I know people are listening to this, but over here's my whiteboard with my nine steps. I could pick one of the nine steps, pick one of the sub steps in that, and then talk about that for like three hours if I needed to, because communication breeds clarity, right? And the more that we communicate, the more we're able to communicate because it's a skill. And so you should look at it like, you're probably not going to get Instagram famous. Probably the probability is that everyone listening, no one's going to, you know, make it big on on uh, the gram, right? But right. 
if you start a podcast or like a little a vlog or a YouTube channel or something and you give yourself permission to be bad or give yourself permission to gain mastery instead of be a master, you'll get better and better. And that will leak over into like all these other aspects of your life. So you'll be a better communicator with customers. You'll be a better communicator with your employees or your coworkers. So I really want people to find something like that and just find the time for the one thing. But a lot of my content's just repurposed. That's the other secret to the sauce. <laughs> well, I, I definitely give you props for doing a solo podcast a lot of the time. Like I listen to it and immediately think like, oh, if I had to carry an episode for like 30, 45 minutes by myself, I'm not sure I could do that. So I definitely give you props. <laughs> I appreciate that. So I always round out every episode by asking my guests, what have you been researching this week? It doesn't have to be manufacturing related or what your job related. It's just always cool to see what other manufacturing people are up to, whether it's you know, I've had people talk about cooking or being a dad or, you know, anything. So what's been popping up in your search history the most? Falling back in love with SEO right now. And so I've been just like really hot on learning more about search engine optimization. And I've had a lot of luck with it in the past. So it's kind of a, a geeky thing. I don't know. It sounds dumb, but like I have a lot of friends that put out books, right? So like I'm just, I'm reading a lot, I guess. That's the thing. So I'm trying to just find more time to set aside like half an hour or 45 minutes a day to, to read. See, it seems like everybody wrote a book while they're at home. <laughs> I don't have to read, but yeah, I, I don't know. I go through cycles, right? I get really into mindset stuff and then I read it and then I'm like, this is garbage. Like this is like brainwashing. I'm like, I got to read something tactical and I read tactical stuff and I'm just like, I need, you know, so right, right now I'm reading stuff on SEO and I'm reading stuff on marketing because I'm really kind of hyped up on that. Awesome. Well, Callie, I really appreciate you coming on the show and taking the time. It was fantastic to get to talk to you more and kind of hear more about your backstory. You know, we when I stumbled upon your Instagram, I didn't know nearly the depth of your knowledge in manufacturing and all of that. So it's really cool to get to hear the whole story. Hey, I'm not just an Instagram goofball, right? <laughs> not just another pretty face with a beard. <laughs> Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time and thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back next week.